0: That's one of the concerns, you know, the police had is, all. Oh, you only focused on policing. Well, yes, we did only focus on policing because there was a lot more energy and accountability we felt we could place there versus trying to do too much and, you know, have like a thousand recommendation thing that really is meaningless we want 14 things that we know are in the purview of the city because our report goes back to city council. That was the, that was the audience. So, so that was always the focus of the task force. Is we can't recommend things that are more in the jurisdiction of the province or the federal government because that's a really easy way for people to just pass the buck and not have any action.
1: community and personal safety is something I don't think any black person has taken for granted in this city, given not only recent events, but our long history of racism in Edmonton. From a series of brazen attacks against black Muslim women in broad daylight, to recently a black student at Rosenton School being violently attacked by a group of students while being called a nigger during the assault. This doesn't even account for the unreported harassment, attacks, and slurs black folks have contended with, that don't get into the public eye. When it comes to institutions that are meant to protect and prevent this hate, what we've seen time and time again is that they aren't equipped to help when attacks happen and have even perpetuated harmful practices onto the black community through their actions and policies. Police practices like carding have been shown to target indigenous and black Edmontonians at disproportionate rates, which have now conveniently been changed to street checks by Alberta's first black justice minister, Casey Madu, when it's clear that the practice is the same and what seems like an attempt to uphold the status quo while parroting change. We're now seeing these institutions attempt to change in a way that on this show we've been very skeptical of before, specifically committees, and how they can be used to deny potential action that's already been proposed and as a potential tactic to delay change and eventually just revert back to the status quo. In this episode specifically, the committee in question is the Community Wellbeing and Safety Task Force that released 13 recommendations to City Council. Some of these recommendations include professionalizing policing by creating a regulatory college for cops, expanding the number and use of crisis diversion in alternative policing teams, looking into collective agreements and how they might contribute to systemic bias, and bringing new transparency and independence to the public complaints process. These recommendations were presented to City Council on April 6, and after discussion, the Council moved to have City Administrators consider how 13 of these recommendations can be implemented. Arguably one of the most important recommendations to bring police funding in line with comparable cities, or otherwise just basically cut police spending, was denied on the basis that a funding decision like this shouldn't be made on behalf of the next council, which will be elected soon in a municipal election during the fall. In the face of thousands of Edmontonians asking for change in police spending, and data showing 30% of calls for service are mental health related and can potentially be diverted, we're still left waiting for the results of the next election, when councillors will have the same information in front of them. Which leads me to believe that if decisive action isn't taken, These steps are being taken to avoid any budget cuts altogether, while not taking responsibility for opposing community asking for this change. With the other 13 recommendations, while relatively reasonable and sometimes even incremental, they received some criticisms from some city councilors, and especially by the police union, that wrote in an open letter calling it insulting and demeaning to every police officer in this city. If this is the response to recommendations that are pushing for reform, I think that it's clear that all the language surrounding change and transforming the Edmonton Police is simply a call to make change on the Edmonton Police's terms without accepting community input or outside their own parameters. To talk more about the Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force and what can be done about racism in our city, I'll be joined by Irfan Chowdhury, a member of the Task Force and a Criminology Lecturer at McEwen University. Irfan is the creator of StopHate.ca, a website told to report hate crimes in the community, and has done work around exposing the realities of racism in our city and province. He serves as the Director of McEwen University's Office of Human Rights, Diversity and Equity. He's also a former civilian employee with the Edmonton Police, who's seen what the institution is capable of from the inside. Just a note from my interview with Irfan, I mentioned that the task force had their meeting last week. Since this episode was released, that meeting actually happened on April 6th. What really brings you to the table when it comes to doing work around um, not only the community safety and well-being task force, but the other work that you've done around anti-racism?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Irfan Chaudhary. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I work at McCune University as an instructor in criminology and also with their, their, you know, director of the human rights office. Um, but that, not, that's not necessarily what brought me to kind of the task force or the work. I think, you know, uh, over the last number of years, I've been involved in a number of like, you know, hate crime uh, related reporting, uh, you know, spaces where we're just trying to get a better understanding of what we currently have and how it impacts communities in a negative way and what we can do to improve on reporting of hate incidents specifically. So I, I created Stop StopHateAB.ca as a third-party hate reporting tool. Uh, also done a lot of work around just, you know, the realities of racism in our in our city, in our province. Uh, a number of, you know, committees and task force have had a chance to sit on, previously worked with the city of Edmonton on a project called Racism Free Edmonton. So that's kind of always been the, the weave and the thread there. I think what brought me to the the task force, um, you know, my very first job at a university was with the Edmonton Police Service as a crime analyst. So I, I have a, a strong interest in in policing. Uh, but now, when you kind of mesh it with my interest and expertise around equity and inclusion, I have a very strong interest and commitment in ensuring the two are 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 merging appropriately. I would say. Um, and I haven't seen that happen, if I'm being completely honest, uh, whether in Edmonton or elsewhere. I think right now policing in general is in a space of reckoning, of course. And we saw that come to fruition last year uh, with the multiple protests um, regarding police violence and use of force. And you're, you're, you're observing that police services are becoming more, they're they're using the language of equity inclusion a lot more, You know, saying like, we're committed, we're gonna address things, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. But I think the practice is really what I think needs to be challenged. And so what led me to the task force is, is knowing the experience I had at the table um, and a few other people that were also on the task force. We didn't know who was going to be on the task force until we were appointed. But, you know, now that I reflect and seeing some of the other folks on the task force, I feel a lot of us knew what questions to be asking and also where to challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to, you know, uh, have a role in this task force, because I've observed, you know, just even in commission meetings, you know, not the right questions aren't being asked to be able to dive into the issue of equity and inclusion within policing in Edmonton. And so that's kind of what drew me to the task force. And I think a
1: number of folks around the table as well had a similar uh, interest. Edmonton has recently seen um, a wave of hate crimes against black Muslim women And I think it's pretty fair to say that, um, you know, racism is not only alive and well, but I think pretty brazen when it comes to um, hate symbols, um, groups that are organizing themselves. So, when these attacks happened i think community members rightfully so were wondering you know what what can be done about this um in a meaningful way um from from leaders in elected positions but also from a a policy perspective as well um so from from the work that you've done in the past um what do you think are actionable items or are things that people can expect to see that will will seriously curb these incidents of hate um, and you know actually tackle um, racism in in alberta in a meaningful way
0: yeah so you know for me this is uh this is one angle i've been pursuing quite a bit from the the policy side uh, of things and uh, the potential for i wouldn't even necessarily say federal legislation change because you know our hate crime laws haven't been looked at in any significant way since the the, the 1990s i would say it's now 2021 um, I haven't seen any appetite from any federal kind of, you know, minister to pursue that. Um, nor do I think that's even the right place to start if I'm being completely honest. I think there's, what I, what I've observed is you'll often see, you know, municipal and provincial leaders just default to saying, well, the criminal code, which falls under the federal jurisdiction, of course, limits our ability to, to do anything so we can't do anything. But I want to challenge that a bit more. Why can't we do anything from a provincial level? Why can't we do anything from a municipal level if we know federally some of those laws aren't uh, strong enough? And so one of the things I've really tried to pursue, and I've had some really good conversations uh, with you know, folks in, in uh, provincial government and municipal uh, in Edmonton around how, we can, um, how can we utilize maybe bylaws or legislation around banning symbols of hate at bare minimum. Right Like that could be the bare minimum we can do, because oftentimes people will say, "Well, there's Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the freedom of expression, um, freedom of assembly pieces that sometimes these gatherings that have been coming up, where people have had tiki torches and you know whatnot, um, you know being challenged on, on not being able to do anything because of our current legislation, but I've been you know connected to a colleague out um, in in uh, Portland, Oregon, and they've been successful in getting through their Senate so their equivalent of their state senate, so our our provincial government, uh, of a a bill that would regulate the presence of uh, symbols of racial intimidation at, uh, at public protests So they, they're going a bit more bolder Because of the history of the states uh, They're calling for a ban of uh, nooses At these types of uh, You know, events where you see Right-leaning and white supremacist groups Because the noose historically In the American context has very, very Strong symbolism connected to Lynching and slavery and racism That there isn't enough to Kind of curtail people from saying It's just a noose they know well with the context that a noose is not a noose, especially in that context. So they've been able to legislate, you know, have I can't remember what reading it's on, but it's fairly close to getting passed, I think. They've been able to legislate the banning of, uh, of uh, nooses at these types of protests that we've seen similar, like in our art. In province around uh the the guise of uh, racial intimidation and so i've kind of pushed that kind of an idea and that narrative to some of our sitting leaders um some from the opposition i haven't had much luck with anyone in the current kind of you know ucp government uh but i haven't tried if i'm being completely honest because i'm not sure who the purple place would be but what's stopping us from, you know, when you have these gatherings at the ledge grounds, for example, we're still allowing people to have their freedom to, to express whatever view they want to. But if we see symbols that we know are impacting racialized communities specifically in a negative way, even though it might not overtly be stating that as much even though it might be someone saying i'm doing this for religious purposes as what was some of the arguments being put forward by some of the groups uh i think we can still have legislation in place or even a bylaw in place to say you know if this is happening on public grounds that the the city controls we're not going to tolerate any kind of racial intimidation symbols we don't have anything like that right now and i don't know what's kind of you know stopping us or impeding us from considering how our own you know localized whether municipal or provincial uh legislation can fill in the gap that's currently left from the federal aspect, because then what you get happening is exactly what we see, is people just kind of passing the buck around saying, well, it's not a a crime, so police can't get involved. And that I agree with 100%. If it's not criminal related, Police shouldn't be involved, but then where can we find those gaps? Whether it's communities stepping up, whether it's municipal government stepping up. Similar thing happened. I don't know if you've been following this story in um, in Vermillion, uh, where you know a house was found to have really hateful messages on their private property, and you know they were targeting you know Dr. Hinshaw. They're really overtly sexist, overtly uh, racist in terms of language being used, and the community was saying, "Why is this allowed to happen?" And technically, it didn't fit the threshold of a crime when you look at it from the criminal code perspective, but Vermilion came together and put uh, put uh, their council, put together a uh, uh, an order uh, that demanded the signs to be removed and the person complied. And you can see when you have that level of governance kind of come together quite quickly, things can be addressed, right? So I think that's where we need to have some, um, some bold leadership, I would say, in that regard, because... Oftentimes, it's not until people who are impacted by these types of of weather symbols or language uh, raise the concern because our political landscape and leadership landscape still has a lot of work to do around, you know, being diverse and reflective of our communities, unless it's being raised to you as an issue because you don't experience it personally, you're not really going to know it's something to address. Right. And so I think those are pieces where we can still advocate for change at very localized levels and you know knowing we have a municipal election coming up in edmonton and i believe calgary is also having the same cycle as well these would be questions i'd be asking candidates you know what's your what's your what's your commitment to addressing the exact thing you just asked me uh if you were elected to city council and it's very easy to get answers that are meaningful versus answers that are just you know bs you know i support everyone Equity inclusion means everything to me. Okay, but what does that mean in terms of addressing hate symbols? Unless someone can give an answer for that, uh, you know, that's someone that I wouldn't necessarily be voting for uh, because that's an important civic issue for me. Uh, based on exactly what you talked about, what we're seeing here in Edmonton,
1: when it comes to um, the uh, task force specifically, um, so we're seeing a slate of recommendations that went to City Council last week. Um, I want to go back to um, the work that was done internally um, with the task force and kind of the rhyme and reason of um, a few of the points that you um, brought forward to city council. Um, So I was wondering um, what are some of the or I guess if you can remember like three of the um, I'd say most pressing most important recommendations um, that were made and I guess Why and how you think they will really be impactful to um, changing policing um, in Edmonton?
0: Before I, I, so I can't narrow it down to three. uh, If I'm being completely honest, because we think all of them are important, and that's why we had have them kind of listed there. But what I can share in terms of how we got to this space. Uh, is around kind of overall principles that we had kind of established as we worked together as a task force. And a lot of it was, you know, accountability within policing. And so that's where you'll see recommendations around enhanced training, uh, not just kind of checkbox training, but training around, you know, whether it's anti-racism, anti-oppression, equity and inclusion, you know, there's various ways, unconscious bias, but having it embedded within the life cycle of a a police officer's career, uh, because right now, from our understanding, it's only given really in the recruit phase uh, and it's essentially optional throughout someone's you know life cycle as a a police officer but trying to embed that within the 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 advancement process for example so if you're going to go to a sergeant or a staff sergeant or an inspector or superintendent position those things around equity and inclusion should be you know looked at and evaluated in that process similar to to how they might look at leadership skills and leadership development. So I think that's what we're trying to build in terms of some of that increased accountability through training uh, and awareness of some of these key aspects that might lead to racial profiling or, uh, you know, acting in ways that are impacting communities of color. The other thing though, of course, like we can't shy away from was, was the money, right? The money was a big, big aspect um, and the task force members, you know the ones that weren't connected because we had folks from the city of Edmonton there, we had folks from the commission there, and the police there. Uh, but the ones that weren't connected to any of those entities, you know, I think we we were we were always very much well reminded of the you know 140 uh, or so Edmontonians that came together last summer to share their concerns with city council around the topic of of policing. And, you know, we had some really good data to help us, you know, frame what most people were saying in those, in those hearings. And of course you had those, you know, polar opposites from, you know, a policing perspective and an abolished perspective, but the, the middle ground people were asking for was just around increased accountability, increased transparency, uh, and just a better utilization of funds as it relates to policing and a more equitable distribution. Because, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of conversations around not just edmonton but numerous police forces tend to get uh the bulk of a city's budget and you know 85 percent or more often is related to human resources and personnel and so really trying to challenge ways of you know can we still support what we need for policing uh, but also give some of the community facing organizations uh, 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 an equitable chance of getting funding to do things that police might be doing right now that are probably well suited within a community's perspective. And so the one example we had uh, so we had members from uh, Bear Clan Patrol. I don't know if you're familiar with that group, but it's fairly new. They're they uh, brought up in Edmonton over the last six months, uh, and essentially they'll go out at evenings and weekends, especially in the in the in the winter time, uh, just looking to take care of people who are experiencing homelessness. So providing them with you know let's say gloves or blankets or food or you know clothing, other things that can help them at least adapt to their their circumstance that they're at at that time. And so for us, you know when you have have community-based organizations like that that are, are, are volunteer-driven and not funded in any meaningful way? Um, how can those types of organizations be better funded? Because you're still feeding into the community safety uh, safety uh, ecosystem without relying on policing, right? And so, what would come up during these meetings is we had a number of high-profile things occur that kind of just reminded the need for better utilization of funds to be taken to look at some of these community organizations, um, you know, there was the same bear bear clan patrol. Also had video of them being booted out of the LRT in minus thirty plus, you know, weather, uh, and you know, homeless individuals in Edmonton being treated in very non dignifying ways. Uh, because whatever happened from a city of Edmonton or policing perspective, their direction was to remove people from the LRT by any means necessary. Uh, but that's not that's not compassionate policing. And that goes against, you know, what some of these police services are saying in terms of being more, more compassionate and more equitable in terms of how service is delivered. But we're not seeing that. And there was time and time again throughout the task force where Edmonton-specific examples kept coming up that would really frustrate task force members because whether it was this Bear Clan example, whether it was, you know, other examples of, you know, police policing themselves in terms of, you know, uh, concerns that came up around use of force and then a former police officer saying, well, no, we didn't see anything. And then, okay, the officer then is, 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 you know, recluse from that. It's those types of systemic patterns that this group was trying to challenge. And I think this is what is sometimes missed in the conversation since the report's been public, because there has been some allegations out there that this, this report is targeting, you know, the Edmonton police service, in a negative way, uh, it could be perceived that way, but I think we also have to look at it more holistically. We're we're looking at the system of policing which Edmonton does have uh, a police service that needs to be changed right and so it's not just a matter of Edmonton we know we would likely have these same recommendations to other police services as well uh, given the context of the systems change that's trying to be implemented here because the challenge now that we have in front of us because the task force work, work uh, we're no longer a task force uh, we're we're you know the 90-day period that City Council has, has uh, provided administration to be able to look at the feasibility of 13 of 14 recommendations. They didn't accept the last one around uh, police funding because they didn't they didn't feel it would be fair to the new incoming City Council to to do that. Uh, but looking at how the 13 can be can be administered and you know incorporated because I think there is an appetite from I'd say most of the councilors like around changing the system and. The only way to do that is to look at what you've done and try to do it differently because what we have right now uh, isn't working. And I would also echo, it's not just policing that has the same issue. What you're observing is organizations that have traditional paramilitary style hierarchical structures so policing is one of them. Uh, firefighting is another one of them that often doesn't get discussed enough, but we know is having similar issues. Uh, and then more broadly, you know, that does have a militar- militaristic uh, system is the military. All three of these systems are reporting over the last number of years um, instances around racial discrimination connected to to staff members uh, or people that they serve, um, allegations of misconduct within military, uh, allegations of misconduct within the Calgary Police Service related to racism, right? These are all things that are publicly out there and the system that you see, that the similarity is the structure of those systems. And so I think it's come to the point now where if we want to start to, you know, dismantle some of those systems to provide better service for everyone involved, then it is asking some of these tough questions around accountability and how funds are utilized. Where's funding going? What kind of training is received? How is it, you know, impacting the people who are receiving the training, and more importantly, people on the receiving end of, you know, your training as a result of of, of some of the actions that you take. Um, and so I think that's really the spirit of this dialogue is to not try to target, you know, a certain police service, you know, as it's been taken. Uh, it's trying to really understand policing as a system that we know is problematic and has been acknowledged in various ways, including the Canadian association for the chiefs of police who came together and said, yes, systemic discrimination is an issue within policing, but acknowledging it isn't enough. But now you're seeing the hard work when you're being provided in this case, 14 recommendations of how you can start looking at systemic discrimination. Um, And I only speak for myself here in terms of a task force member, uh, but then the default response from, you know, the police is saying the information is is not evidence-based and inaccurate, uh, even though we we utilize information that was provided to us uh, from the city of Edmonton as well as them. So if that information is not accurate, then... Maybe things you're also doing are not accurate either. Uh, during the, the the deliberations with city council, one of the um, one of the, the city councilors, who's also a, a commission member, uh, you know, didn't say it directly, but underlyingly tried to challenge the report as unethical uh, because of a, a line in the report that said, you know, re- regardless of who's in council at that time, these are things that need to be addressed right away. For whatever reason, they were trying to frame that as an unethical line and then discounting the whole report as a result of one small sentence. Like it was very, very bizarre. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then of course, you have the response from the police association uh, calling the report itself racist and then challenging the integrity of people at the task force. And I just want to remind listeners, right? The task force was made up of a very, very diverse group of Edmontonians, some of whom, I would say in the past have been the strongest supporters of the Edmonton police service because of the community related work that they had been involved with in the past. And to, to claim that this group lacks integrity, to claim that this group lacks ethics, uh, and then to claim this group is, you know, reporting on things that are not evidence-based, that's just reaffirming systemic bias and discrimination because I've never seen another task force being labeled in such a negative and derogatory way um, than this group has been framed as and that I think is really disappointed a lot of the task force members who spent uh, three hours in the evening every week over the span of eight months because they were committed to addressing this issue in a meaningful way and to just flippantly say that the task force members um, lack integrity, lack ethics or lack evidence it's, it's, you know, again, for us, it just kind of reaffirmed the reason for why these types of reports are needed, uh, because it exposes once the challenging work needs to be done, rather than doing the work itself, you start to expose those individuals who provided you with, you know, recommendations as the problem themselves. So, you know, there's a scholar out there, Sarah Ahmed, she talks about, you know, when you when you start raising the issue, you become the issue. And so that's really what's been in my opinion redirected only from the policing side because what i've observed from the city of edmonton side they're 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 doing the work right they've committed 90 days to reporting back on how they can implement a lot of these uh these recommendations but we haven't seen the same
1: response from the police it seems like they they want to keep that change within their own purview you know they keep mentioning how these you know um, they have the the chief's advisory council they have pact they have all these things happening internally so um, they don't necessarily want to engage with the external um the the external change that's being proposed on the table um, and you know i personally think that allows them to you know keep you know funding uh going that allows them to keep some control of how these things are implemented or maybe not implemented um, but do you, do you have a, an opinion on that or is there is there a way for them to come to
0: the table or that's a really good question and you know that was something always on top of mind for a number of task force members we always would challenge or or we would always you know kind of forecast you know if we recommend this they're going to say they're already doing that so we want that's why we wanted to elevate some of those recommendations to be more accountable um, because you're right the other the other layer there though you know i look at something like the help the, the recent help unit that they've just established, right? Where, you know, you have police and a social worker, I think kind of going around inner city Edmonton, redirecting people away from the justice system. And while that that's, you know, to me on surface, that's okay. The question I always get is, but do police need to be doing that? Because that's where this argument comes where, well, now we're gonna ask for more money uh, to city council to expand the help program, which is a community partnership. And so that's all good. But the question is, well, why wouldn't we just give that money – to, I think it's Bissell for example that they've partnered with to do that work still have a police liaison connected to the program but the funding should be provided to these community groups versus the police and that I think is often the tension we see is when you want to try to roll out some of these initiatives trying to empower other groups to be able to also take on ownership and that includes financial ownership of some of these programs because you know one of the things that our task force wasn't able to get to which was out of our purview was even the way uh, you know bias is is uh, present within the delivery of uh, funding and grant options. You know, you see, for whatever reason, uh, certain communities that are connected to different racial or ethnic uh, groups in the city have to rely on a third-party uh, organization, such as Reach, to be the holder of the 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 money for them to be able to, to distribute it to the, their community, and so that creates a distrust around, well, why can't you provide us directly with the money? Why are we on an added layer of surveillance and you have to use like an intermediary to, to give us funds, uh, that we want to utilize for community safety, right? So we couldn't get into that, but that's another layer, right? Because the, the national council of Canadian Muslims, uh, they released a report, I think about a few weeks back that highlighted how, uh, a number of Muslim organizations and charities in Canada were inequitably, audited by the federal government looking for connections to in this case you know terrorist funding but it was very very inequitable and it was also very discriminatory in terms of why they were doing that right and so that's another piece of the puzzle that often doesn't get uh, discussed enough but then when you have intermediaries uh, whether it's you know the police for example or the city providing funds but then also providing barriers this also challenges those those types of aspects and the ability for funds to get to where they need to go and so rather than you know punishing, I'll put that in quotation marks, punishing groups by not giving them funds directly. If you don't feel comfortable or don't feel they have the capacity to navigate funds you're going to be giving them, provide capacity building, provide coaching, provide you know, one-on-one connection to the person in, that's serving the grant so that you can ensure that they can carry out the grant appropriately versus default saying, oh, we don't know if you can handle the money, so we're going to give it to this group and then they'll be the ones to give it to you. That creates mistrust.
1: It, it kind of seems like a difficult proposition because I think for a lot of people, um, even something like the 30 uh, percent um, proposed cut that BLM was asking for based on the um, calls to service. Um, I think that's something that realistically could have been taken on by city council, could have been, you know, discussed at that level without necessarily needing a task force. But. What was a worry when this was all happening last summer was that, you know, these things would be taken to a task force um, or taken to a committee level. You know, a lot of work would be done only to end up in the same kind of position where, you know, the status quo is upheld and things only move by minuscule level. Or, like you said before, you know, it's only given lip service. You know, we say that we're anti-racist. We say that we want to systematically change, but things aren't really happening. So I guess for those who are still kind of left with the same asks that they wanted to kind of get past before, um, what options do you think are available? And you mentioned, you know, we're going into a municipal election. Um, what do you think it, are, are places um, that people can push to see these things change more?
0: yeah and i mean i I don't want to kind of default to having people run for these positions because I know there's a lot of challenges and, and barriers involved there like I myself ran for city council in two thousand and fifteen for an open by election seat, uh, and it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done um and so i do i do appreciate and you're putting yourself out there as well, not just your family out there as well right but I think having these types of questions if if you're not interested or able able to run at this point in time, you know, being able to really put to task the councillors that are, you know, going to be running. Uh, we're gonna have a new mayor. So what does the new potential new mayor have to say about these things? We already know one of the the the, the mayor candidates who's a current city counselor, uh, he's made their 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 position quite clear in terms of where he stands on, on this. And so I think someone like that would likely uh, maintain and embed the status quo if I'm being completely honest. But we don't know what the other views Points are in terms of mayoral candidates. So I would suggest, you know, you know, there's going to be this election cycle is going to be really different because people aren't going to be able to campaign in ways they were able to do prior to COVID. Right. So I think if there's a collective group together, that's really concerned about community safety, uh, initiatives and want direct answers to this, you know, one thing that could be, you know, proposed is, you know, having a a virtual town hall that you invite all candidates and potential yeah, candidates for council and and mayors to uh, and, you know, take note of who attends and who doesn't take note of who responds in what ways and who doesn't because that's where you'll get a sense of where you might want to align some of your uh, voting power behind and so I want people to know that there's strength in numbers in that way because again sitting from someone who who has ran in a municipal election before anytime you get these types of invitations you take them up because for you that could be a potential one or lost vote because you didn't show up right but even if you show up and say and do the wrong thing that's possibly also potential lost votes as well. And so I'm not trying to make this into a vote getting thing, but I think there's ways to keep people accountable who want to sit on these uh, in these positions. So that'd be one number two. I don't think we put enough um, onus on how much the admin, police commission is able to do in these types of aspects. Um, and I don't think, I don't think that the appropriate levers have been pushed. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it was one of our, uh, one of our recommendations, um, you know, I think number eight, change the competition and recruitment of the Edmond Police Commission to more comprehensively reflect the community. I think that's key, right? Until we have people at the commission level uh, that are, again, knowledgeable and able to respond and share uh, questions or share insights that challenge how policing has been done for the improvement of it. I think I agree with you. We're going to get that status quo, right? So I think that's really where, you know, there could be some, in this time period anyways, some further push, right? Getting together, having a virtual town hall connected to, you know, policing and community safety in Edmonton for candidates and see who shows up, see what's said, have that information available uh, publicly Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, here's what people reported um, and, and have others make up their decisions, right? Because this will... In terms of everything we have on the go right now, this will definitely be a strong key, you know, in my opinion anyways, uh, municipal election issue. At the end of the day, like, you know, Edmonton wasn't the only city that kind of came together to to look at ho- how we can make policing, you know, more effective, right? And so even though this task force came together around the community safety well-being umbrella, because we had such a small period of time to get recommendation back, like we had to work within an eight month uh, or sex, uh, six month uh, cycle, We couldn't look at everything. And I think that's one of the concerns, you know, the police had is all you only focused on policing. Well, yes, we did only focus on policing because there was a lot more energy and accountability we felt we could place there versus trying to, you know, do too much and, you know, have like a thousand recommendation thing that really is meaningless. And so we were really mindful of that. We'd want to just come up with like 60 things for someone to not do. We want 14 things that we know are in the purview of the city because our report goes back to city council. That was the, that was the audience. So so that was always the focus of the task force. We can't recommend things that are more in the jurisdiction of the province or the federal government, because that's a really easy way for people to just pass the buck and not have any action. And so we put to task around making sure that anything we put together was in the realm of municipal government and city council. And so that's why, uh, the recommendations themselves are so laser focused on on not even just policing. It's policing, but it's also bylaw. It's also peace officers that are employed by the city of Edmonton. And so it's looking at that law enforcement system, whether it's in a policing environment or a non-policing environment, it still impacts people the same, right? We still see reports that saying indigenous people, black people are stopped at higher rates for you know, street checks or whatever they might be called now um lrt security uh uh data found the exact same thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's not just in edmonton you see different you know vpd just came a vancouver police department just came out with a report that said oh look our recent survey has highlighted less indigenous and black people are being stopped but that means they're still being stopped you know what i mean arbitrarily in my opinion still and it's how that data gets utilized that's also the concern as well you saw similar things uh over this last weekend where the ontario government and uh, now they've scaled back from that of course but said that they're going to utilize police for spot checks around covid um you know following covid health uh, protocols and the uproar you saw on twitter connected to individuals like you saw lawyers putting out their personal information for black and indigenous community members saying if you need help because you've been arbitrarily stopped by the police because of these new measures call me right away because again when you expand these types of powers it does impact racialized communities uh, a lot more and that's the interesting thing of it doesn't matter how many you know reports are out there that confirm the same thing that denial is still there and so i think this is where a task force like this trying to challenge some of those narratives uh, and the status quo is really trying to get at some of those systemic pieces that lead to these outcomes If I'm honest with you, I think our city council, the current one and administration right now, they're the ones that put the task force together. They're the ones that are putting 90 days together to come back on a report. So what that report looks like, I'm really curious to see. But I haven't seen the same appetite from our policing friends. And so to me, that's where it's concerning because until you're ready to make that change, we are going to continue to see the same aspects continue.
1: To end this episode and season... I want to look into the future of what's possible, given our current situation with reforms on the table, but a large amount of uncertainty and work to be done. To do this, I want to read a portion of a book called As Black as Resistance Finding the Conditions for Liberation by Zoe Simuzi and William C. Anderson. I highly recommend this book for anyone looking for a good read about the context of black liberation and resistance, along with the future of what to look forward to with these movements. In the book, the authors make the case for a new program of self-defense and transformative politics for black Americans, one rooted in an anarchistic framework that the authors liken to the black experience itself. While the text is focused on America, I think it also applies to communities in this country and the unique struggles faced here as well. Here's the text from As Black as Resistance. Removing oppression, not reforming it demands the creation and radicalization of new dissidents. It is an exercise in imagining new communities. Our identities will be reflected in our willingness to nurture and channel the angst, anger, dissatisfaction, and resentment felt by Black people towards institutions of injustice. Channeling collective racial trauma into world-imagining energy and analysis is one of the ways we express care for our fellow Black people, and our desire to improve their conditions. Non-participation in the systems that harm us is not a choice for many of us. We can learn to undermine them when the opportunities present themselves. Meaningful steps towards liberation do not have to be dramatic. Steve Biko's assertion that the most potent weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed encourages us to create new ways of understanding oppression so that we may effectively challenge it. And recreate ourselves at every opportunity. It's been quite the process to produce this season of Is This For Real. We've talked about issues of police policing themselves in Alberta and the broken civilian complaints process with Edmonton lawyer Tom Engel, heard painful stories of police brutality and misconduct against black folks in our city, like the stories of Mo, Sifa, and Jean Claude, along with police abuses within the school system through the School Resource Officer Program, and the problematic future of police technology and surveillance on our lives. We've talked about problems with how the media cover police and black lives in Canada, along with multiple stories of how elected officials have fallen short in acting on community demands regarding policing in Edmonton. There are a lot of people that I want to send thanks to for making this podcast a reality. Thank you to the members of our founding team, Bashir, Avanish, Nicholas, and our former host, Hanan, for all their work, help, and support with this podcast. Thank you to the Edmonton Community Foundation for providing us support with this podcast from the very beginning, and thank you to all the patrons on Patreon who have supported this podcast throughout this season. A thank you also goes out to all the members of our board who've worked to keep this project going. Stay tuned to our social media for what's going on next, and a few different opportunities to get more involved with this project. Thank you again for listening and supporting the show.